Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. In this episode, you're gonna hear Nick Gibson interview Joel B. about critical race theory and how that impacted the Southern Baptist Convention. The podcast that Nick and Joel recorded initially was really long and it's all really good stuff. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna split this into two parts. So today you're gonna hear part one of Nick and Joel talking about critical race theory. What is it? How should it affect us Christians? How should we think about it? How should we think about race relations? all sorts of things like that. It's a really, really good episode. So give it a listen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a podcast designed to make substantive leaders for the local church. I am here with uh, Joel Oblivion. Joel is a, is a PhD student in philosophy, and um, we have him on when we, sometimes when we talk about fairly complex concepts and also when we talk about concepts that kind of get um, misunderstood when they get translated into the popular view of things and they get talked about on Facebook um, and so sometimes we like to bring on Joel to be like Joel what do people think about this when they actually do thinking and then how can we translate this in such a way as to for to inform us as we think about things as Christians in the world so Joel thanks for being here we're glad that you're back on it's great to be here I, I love Every opportunity to uh, come on the Engage and Quit podcast—it's sort of a, a highlight for me of the of the week to be able to be here with you, Nick. And Good. Look forward to our conversation. Good. Yeah. So today we are talking about uh, CRT or critical race theory, and um, some conversations wrapped around it. So to rip something right out of the headlines from a few weeks ago, now actually, um, there was a a uh, really unfortunate. I don't know if you call it kerfuffle or what, but like a conflict about CRT in the largest Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptists, right? Where um, six um, presidents of the Southern Baptist seminaries signed a public document that said, we will not be teaching CRT in our seminaries because it is incompatible with Christian faith. Um, And then there was a backlash from some black brothers who were like, "Um, you guys are all white and you didn't even talk to us. And, why would you say that? And aren't CRT is kind of a broad thing. And they felt like it was a really insensitive shot with racist overtones in the sense that they felt like it was, they were basically outlawing a bunch of conversations that they felt like might be necessary to talk about racial justice and Christian faith. Right. And so that, so there were some shots back both ways and it really didn't get resolved. Like there was some, there was a meeting with all the, where all the people got brought in for it. And, um, Moeller, who is one of the, these presidents said, I'm, listen, I'm really sorry. I didn't bring in some of you guys before we signed this, but I'm not backing down on this. Right. Yeah. And so I, th- I want to say four or five black churches left. And this is a denomination of thousands of churches, but it's still a really sad thing. I mean, it's not a lot of big churches and Charlie Dates's church just entered the communion, but it's still really sad for it to be public like that, for those churches to leave at all for the Southern Baptist church to struggle. And in, in all some of this stuff, some of the people who've been working for racial justice in the SBC, um, like Russell Moore, people were calling for his resignation from the committee on ethics. Um, and so there's just been a lot of infighting about this and a lot of people are asking about it. So um, what are some of this, as you looked at the SBC thing itself, what is some stuff you picked up about how that happened publicly and how misunderstandings thrived and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, I do think it was a very unfortunate event, and you're, you're right, there is a lot of backlash to it. It's not clear that the backlash is going to have the kind of reconciling effect we, we would hope for in the SBC. Yeah. 
Um, but one thing, one thing that people, some I think people might see if they look at the the statement from the SBC um, seminary presidents, they might they might look at it, and they're going to see at least two things. They're going to see the, these presidents claiming that CRT critical race theory will have no place in the curriculum of those universities and that none of the professors um, will endorse it. Right. But there's a second part to this where in the statement, a lot of these uh, officials from the SBC, whether in the statement or later will come out and say, look, we think we, we do think that that racism is real. We believe that racism manifests at various levels of society, both at the personal and the structural. And so it's interesting that I, when, I, when I read this, I was like, okay, this all-encompassing blanket repudiation of CRT, is go- it, it's going to cause problems, and I understand why, and we should actually talk about why that's causing problems. Yeah. But then it might feel like, well, there's something good that at least the SBC is saying, well, we still believe in racism. And I think when I looked at this uh, statement... Be- I, I meaning felt, we believe in racism, meaning we believe that there is racism that exists that, that we that's should right. deal with. We think it's yeah. out there. We think racism is a problem in society, right. but it just felt super inadequate. It felt like there was this major repudiation of CRT, which is a very large kind of nebulous research program with some very core tenets, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. So when you say we're not going to allow any of that to be taught, you're left, you leave people wondering, well, what exactly? Because I think if you look at CRT, you're going to find that though there's stuff you disagree with, there's actually a lot that's really insightful and really helpful. And that really resonates with the experience of black Americans. And so to come along and say, well, we also think there is systemic racism out there feels really inadequate. It feels like it's not the right way of qualifying and, and doing justice to the, to the, the nature of racism in society. So I I was really discouraged and um, frustrated with what happened. Yeah. So let's let's try to clarify things for people because I, I posted this on Facebook and be like, hey, what questions do you want me to ask Joel? And um, most people in the questions apparently did not know very much about exactly what CRT was. And so a few people were like, could you just define some terms? So, you know, for people listening, what is critical race theory and what yeah. what what is like what amounts to it and what doesn't? Yeah, it's a really good question. So let me preface by, by even just saying a bit more about myself for some of the listeners who, who maybe don't know me, which is probably most of them. I am a PhD candidate studying philosophy, and my area of focus is in contemporary analytic philosophy. And I focus on questions like, uh, what is justice? When do people acquire obligations to remedy injustice? What makes you complicit in injustice? So I'm very interested in complicity. I'm very interested in whether merely benefiting from injustice, merely benefiting from injustice can result in obligations to remedy injustice. There's a really interesting literature that's growing up around that question. So that's where my, my research takes me. So I am not a critical race theorist. I don't do concentrated work in critical race theory. Some of my research on the concept of privilege, for example, or on complicity has led me to interact with some people who are lumped in under the umbrella of critical race theory. But I just want to say I'm not the expert on critical race theory. So um, as far as defining it, I'm I just think you go, just for most listeners, you just basically said, "I'm the scholar on CRT." Like you're trying to say you weren't. You're like basically, I study everything around it, all the stuff it's properly interested in, all those kinds of questions that it's generally asking. But I'm not a scholar on this, so I, I, I think you've accomplished two purposes that are helpful. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, 
Well, so I think I think the best way to get a grip on what critical race theory is is to just go to critical race theorists. So there's a really lovely, simple introduction to critical race theory by Richard Delgado and uh, Jean Stefancic. And they say that critical race theory, CRT, is a movement uh, as a movement as a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies discourses take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group, and self-interest, and emotions, and the unconscious. Um, so that's a really nebulous definition, and it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, it's not really going to distinguish CRT from other forms of um, analysis on racism. So what's key to, to CRT is that it, it can actually be kind of, it kind of clusters around a set of theses, a set of research commitments. And so one of those is intersectionality. So critical race theorists believe in the inter, in what's called intersectionality. We can talk more about that later. They believe- You're, you're going to have to, yeah, you should define it now. Okay. So intersectionality roughly says that your various social standings, your whether your race, your gender, your class, your ethnicity- Sort of your, sort of your sub-identities. That's right. Your sort of yeah. sub-social identities- can all pair up in interesting ways to impact your social experience and your social outcomes. So mm-hmm. consider someone who is a, a woman. Um, a lot of people think that um, there is widespread gender injustice, right? So I have this view, and I think that uh, women are disproportionately affected by a number of um, really pernicious social harms. Okay, so as far as a group identity, I think that women receive disproportionately, they're disproportionately impacted by certain social harms as compared to men. But now ask yourself, is there a difference between white women and black women? And I think the answer is yes, that even if there are harms that sort of fall across w- women as a group, when you break things mm-hmm. up into this other group of uh, race, you're going to find different kinds of harms the way that black women are harmed is going to be somewhat different and importantly different than the way white women are harmed. And we actually see that in the history of the feminist movement. Mm -hmm. There was a major outcry amongst black feminists who are saying that what white feminists were up to was not representing their needs, was not representing the full spectrum Mm -hmm. of the harms assailing women. And so intersectionality just says, when you look at these different intersections of social identity, you find that those intersections make a difference. So Mm -hmm. yeah, what would you add to that? Yeah. So, I mean, and you, and, and like this can be taken several steps, right? So like you, the same black woman now we're talking about, she could be tall and beautiful by standard cultural standards, or it could be overweight and disabled. Right. And so like, those are like two other very different ones. Right. So like how you're treated based on how you look. So like how you look is, is something that is a, an affective social standing among the, among human organisms. Right. Whether now, in CRT, that would be as a cultural construct rather than an, as a that's right. something on the natural level. But, but still, like anything that could be socially constructed. So how we look at people who are disabled, how we look at people who we think are good looking versus not good looking, how height matters, and how we think things, what we what we quantify as race or think of as race, what we think of as gender, and so all these things, right? And then things related to age and generation and so on, um, accent yeah. or the way you talk could yeah. be under this, whether or not English is your first language. And so the idea is, is that like all of these things intersect in a person. And so you, it's not as simple as just say, this is a black person, that's a white person. And then you yeah. differentiate and that's all the differentiation there is. There are like multiple levels at which this differentiates. And so you could have people 
who are who are up in among a traditionally oppressed group of people on multiple levels. So you could have a black woman who is a lesbian who like, and you could just kind of keep going with who English isn't her first language, who has a physical disability and people see her constructed in a certain way and all. And like you could add these. And so that person's, that person's experience is not just that she's each one of these things, but there is a cumulative and inter intersectional or, or interworking effect of all of them together. Yeah. And that matters. Does that make sense? So yeah. So yeah, that's the idea of intersectionality and understood that way. I think it's a fairly uncontroversial idea. I, I agree. Like yeah. I, I don't see how that's a, a highly controversial idea. Well, good. So let's park here a little bit before we go on to these other pillars of critical race theory. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. So um, when I first started learning about intersectionality, I thought this seems so uncontroversial, right? It seems like this really does capture the experience of a lot of people. The, the, the data backs it up. But I think as I've been listening to people who are concerned about critical race theory, one thing they're pointing out is that According to critical race theory, there's a kind of reductionist move. Like all you are is the accumulation and intersections of your social identities. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, look, when I listen to people like uh, Neil Shenvey or Monique Dusan, who are kind of raising alarms about critical race theory, is what I hear them saying is something like critical race theory is really reducing who I am to a social category and to the intersection of social categories. And it's, it's just raising some concerns. Like, doesn't the Gospels tell us that we are more than these social categories and the intersection of these social categories? Um, we are image bearers. We are also individuals in some ways. So in some ways, I, I don't think that those criticisms um, really hit the target because you yeah. could have like a modest intersectionality view and say like, yeah, I agree. You're also made in the image of God. You're also an individual. Your individual choices do make a difference, but these intersections matter. So, so really the question is, what kind of critical race theorist are you? Are you someone who like is hyper intense about intersectionality where like all human experience can be boiled down to the intersection of your social identities? Mm -hmm. Or are you like a modest critical race theorist who says that intersectionality has a profound effect, though it's not the only thing that's true about us as people? Yeah. Okay. I want to clarify the definition of critical race theory again, just for a minute. So cr critical race theory is applying critical theory to race. In the simplest sense, right? Critical theory in general is the idea of looking at things specifically as they relate to power, not just liberal ideas of truth. So I, in one of the early critical race theorists said, um, critical race theorists are critical of the liberal approach, which is this objectivist idea where you believe in like that science describes things as they are without remainder. And so like, and that like, so for example, um, or like that the law should touch everybody the same, no matter what, or so like, for example, one of the ideas that's totally anathema within critical race theory is like the idea of color blindness. That like yeah. the goal of a human society is not to see color. Like, like that just doesn't exist. That's not, you shouldn't be handled on those terms or related to, or seen in those terms. And, and therefore, but what, what critical what, what critical theory says, okay, is is we're not just looking at questions of analytical truth. What we're also looking for is because we're dealing with human organisms and their systems and their language, there are relationships of power, and yeah. you can't ignore those. You have to look at relationships of power and how people like substantiate power and get control of things and so on. And so, critical theory in the up until maybe the early '90s was focused. There was a materialist strain that said, in the structures human beings create. There are these dynamics of power and they need to be looked at very carefully because you do have things like racism 
in the structures and that matters no matter what you think you could say you're colorblind but if in the structure you have a way of en- of enhancing and sustaining racism then liberalism doesn't help us trying to be quote objective doesn't really help us and then in the postmodern turn it focused more on, on language series, how we talked about things and how the way we talks about, talk about things affects our imagination, what we think is possible, the terms in which we think, and what we find plausible and implausible in the stuff we hear. And so yeah. I, th- I think that – so when I think of critical, critical race theory, I think of um, looking critically at questions of race relative to power materialistically and linguistically – in terms of like the structures, the systems of society materialistically, and the languages and the way we talk about things, um, in terms of what pe- people might call language games or that sort of thing, and that 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 like picking at that and trying to figure out where there really is, inhibiting things to non-majority groups or non-incumbent groups of any kind, um, functions to keep them from flourishing fully within a human society specific to race is critical race theory but then you could have you have critical gender theory and critical yeah like there's decolonization theory you you can take critical theory and apply it to all the areas of intersectionality right yeah good i think that emphasis on power is is really important um you know so here's a here's another definition from garza and ono and their article critical race theory they say critical race theory is an intellectual movement that seeks to understand how white supremacy as a legal, cultural, and political condition is reproduced and maintained primarily in the U.S. context. But you could substitute some things out of that definition and, and you'd maintain the essence of critical race theory is that yeah. it seeks to understand how power dynamics between racial groups, uh, both at the legal, cultural, and political level, reproduce and maintain uh, racism in the United States. So it is very interested in power. That's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this actually, so some, some things you said earlier, I think, you know, require clarification. So we talked about racism. Uh, it's important for critical race theorists that racism, that race in particular is a social construct. There isn't like a, a race gene. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a key aspect of critical race theory is that racism is pervasive. It's normal and it's pervasive. It's, it's out there and not just like on the fringe or with these one-off cases where you have members of the KKK or the Proud Boys saying really explicitly racist things. No, Racism is embedded deeply in the way we do law. It's embedded in the way education functions. It's embedded in the way we talk, for sure. That's that's kind of a big part of critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea is that racism is pervasive. It's not it's not this one-off thing that kind of got mostly got resolved during the civil rights movement. Now that's one thing that critical race theories want us to see. They want to undo this assumption that we're a post-racial society thanks to the civil rights uh, movement. They want us to mm-hmm. see though that racism continues to be pervasive and continues to impact our lives. So yeah, maybe nothing I, so controversial there, but yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that it can be very controversial. Yeah. Um, I take that back. Actually, it can be. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it gets, it gets so like, what do you mean? Like, for, for example, when you say racism is embedded in education, what does that mean? Like, does it mean that we've done a lot of racist things historically with, um, with education and there are still some things in the curriculum that are kind of racist and we need to get those out. Or do we mean that like when a school expects a a late four-year-old, early five-year-old to be reading ready when they come into the educational system of the public school, that that's racist. 
because because more white families have two parents, more white families and Asian families engage in reading ready readiness kinds of in linguistic and um, executive order kinds of practices within their internal home cultural domains. And so then to assume a kid is reading ready at late four, early five um, has a disproportionately negative impact on black children who are disproportionately from single. So, right. See that like there's some people who'd be like, that's not racist. There's nothing racist about that. Like, and so that, right. But, but if you're like, look, there's, a, there's like these pictures of black people, like, like in the science part of the textbook, it's all white men. And then you like turn to like, like discussions of crime and industrialization and the pictures are all black people. That's racist. Like everybody I know would be like, yeah, that's racist. Yeah. You should, you shouldn't do that. Like that. You should try to portray people so that everybody can engage in the curriculum and feel good about themselves. That's different than saying there are these functional disparities. And in fact, what W.E.D. Boyce seemed to have been claiming when he said racism is a structural um, lie in America was that the differences between whites and blacks did not exist, but they were not because of this thing called race, which was a nebulous, ill-defined, low-resolution concept that had no basis in real science, though scientists in the late 1800s and even early 1900s thought it did. And that that actually was not true, that you can't, that things that are true of even populations still don't work with race. Because if you could say something that's genetically true about, quote, black people, it might be true of, of Southern Ethiopians, but it wouldn't be true of Nigerians. And so things that you can even say about, about racial populations still doesn't do what we have thought of as race. And so it's just this really unhelpful category. And it was used just to hurt people, basically, to define, well, you've got the white people, you've got the black people, white's good, black's bad. And yeah. people are like, that's stupid. But where this does get problematic is when Christians who are called to help the poor and are called to care when those who have much have too much and those who have little have too little, let's say, or there are people who feel utterly disfranchised to a society, or there's a group of people who have super high incarceration rates in ways that seem like self-fulfilling prophecies. You have these really difficult, moral, morally impactful social problems, right? And I think th I think this is actually the heart of the, the disagreement. And there's a, a group of people who says, this is because of racism. And then other people say, okay, show me the racism so I can help you fight it. And they say, well, if you can't see it, I can't explain it to you. Because deep within the critical theory ideology is this idea of viewpoint of a viewpoint standing that like mm -hmm. you get your understanding from your standpoint where you are situated in your intersectionality. And so because of that, you can only see what you can see. So white people can't see racism and they'll never see it. And you can't explain it to them and they won't see it. And frankly, a lot of there, are, there's a strain of materialist, a moral critical race theory that says, and they don't want to, and never will want to. Yeah. It's not something human organisms care about is justice. What they, what human organisms care about is power. And so that distinction of like, so to make it very close to home in Madison, why is there a strong educational disparity rate between white kids and black kids in Madison? Right. The people I know who are committed to critical race theory believe it's racism is the main reason and the main thing we should operationally focus on in hopes of decreasing that disparity. The people who I know who do not believe critical race theory is a very strong, makes a very strong argument about systemic racism, believe that what needs to happen is we need to focus on families, reading programs, like operational things with kids of color so that they can get raised up to academic levels where they can actually do the work 
that's going to be expected of them in higher levels of education, college, and to actually become things like engineers and so on. Does that make sense? And so it creates this very practical divide. And though that's not really critical race theory in a way, who believes in it and who's associated with what, these lines seem to draw out pretty, for me in my experience, very predictably. I could listen to how somebody talks for about two minutes and I know what they think about how to help people and how to work with people and how to serve people, you know? Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. Um, yeah. I mean, look, I think that there, there, there are always going to people be people on the extreme who are really easy to predict. And I think mm-hmm. my concern is that what we end up doing is thinking that the, the people on the extremes represent the totality of each group, right? And so this is especially concerning to me as far as critical race theory goes, because I think a lot of people, when they think of critical race theory, they think of the the, the very aggressive critical race theorists that you're talking about earlier, mm-hmm. who want to say like, well, whites are uh, racist through and through. Like to be white is to be racist, to be white is to be an oppressor. Mm-hmm. And unless change is incentivized to you in some way, unless it's like economically incentivized, you're not, you're not gonna wanna change. Um, and and which is like, the historic CRT view, right? Like it was, it's a Derek. It's nuanced. It's just, yeah. it's, but it's nuanced, right? Like everything I said can be drawn out and made more nuanced. And the thing is, we're not mm-hmm. good with nuance, right? Like just at a cognitive level, this isn't just, this isn't a criticism of our character. Like just cognitively speaking, we're just not good at handling nuance. But the, the fact is that the nuance matters for understanding this debate. Um, I mean, contemporary criti- critical race theorists are nuanced in, in how they view racism. There's, there is some stuff within critical race theory that I, like some views of racism that I don't find especially plausible as like an analytic philosopher. I just think well, you're getting the concept of racism wrong, mm-hmm. but there are those who do work in critical race theory who are like are sensitive to that reality. Right. And so they're not going to say that, Oh, because you're white, you're a racist. Um, they're not even going to say that like you have this explicit intention to keep the system intact unless it benefits you. No, they're going to say something like as a group, historically whites may not have been motivated without even realizing it. They, they, they don't have an incentive to push for deep change unless in mm-hmm. some way, unless there is some sort of incentive. So this is what critical race theorists mean by interest convergence that at the legal and sort of political level, unless there's something that like benefits white people as a group, it may not re- result in change. And that, and that may be totally oblivious. Like we may be totally oblivious to that as white people that we're sort of slow to resist racism, slow to participate in the dismantling of unfair and unjust systems, unless it sort of like benefits us in some way. And so mm-hmm. here's an example, like let's get, let's give examples. So uh, Derek Bell is a really famous critical race theorist, somewhat controversial. He says a bunch of stuff that I'm like, oh, I totally disagree with you there. And then says some things I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really insightful. So he talks yeah. about interest convergence as it played out um, during the civil rights movement. And so mm-hmm. think about, think about, for example, like Brown versus Board of Education, which was like the desegregating of schools. Um, why did that take so long? Like there was initiative to push for that even before the 50s, right? But why did it take so long for us to desegregate schools, which looking back seems like such an obviously just thing to do is to, to push for um, integration. And, and this was one of his early contributions to the literature. He says, in 1955, the Supreme Court unexpectedly gave activists everything they wanted. Why just then? Well, Derek Bell hypothesized that um, hypothesized that world and domestic considerations, not moral qualms, precipitated the path-breaking decision. So, for example, he talks about 
the end of the Korean War and the end of World War II um, and had not long passed. In both wars, African-American soldiers had performed valiantly in the service of democracy. Many of them returned to the United States and so on. They were unlikely to return willing to, re to regimes of menial labor and social vilification for the first time in years. The possibility of mass domestic unrest loomed. And then he argues that during yeah, that th period, those guys knew how to shoot is what he's saying. Yeah, basically, there's an incentive. Basically, here, right? there's a trained army of black people now like that. That didn't really exist in America before. Right. And he goes on to say, um, during that period as well, the United States was locked in the Cold War, a titanic struggle with the forces of international communism for the loyalties of uncommitted emerging nations, most of which were black, brown, or Asian. It would, it would ill serve the U.S. interest if the world press continued to carry stories of lynchings, clan violence, and racist sheriffs. It was time for the United States to soften its stance toward domestic minorities. The interests of whites and blacks for a brief moment converged. Now, I'm not a historian. I don't know if that's all necessarily true, but it seems like it could be very plausible. Like antecedently, I don't really have any qualms with that. And that's kind of this idea of interest convergence that mm -hmm. until it was made really popular, until it was incentivized economically and politically, the US at the political legal level wasn't ready to necessarily give civil rights activists what they were asking for. And you could have lots of white people who were like oblivious to this, unaware of it. That's a more modest sense in which um, whites sustain or are like complicit in a system that's unfair. So I don't know. Yeah, in, some, in some ways, I think there's probably an application of the bootlegger Baptist issue here that like when things happen in a dem democratic society of highly differentiated people, not everybody's supporting it for the same reason. That's exactly right. So, right. So like, I think it's, I don't know if it's undeniable, but I think it's fairly difficult to deny that a lot of the gains made in the 19, late 1950s and, and, and through the 1960s under um, leadership of people like Martin Luther King, that a lot of those appeals were appeals to conscience. They were telling white people to behave yeah. differently for moral reasons. Now, I think there's a lot of white people probably who did it not for moral reasons, but for pragmatic reasons, like Bell right. is saying. And then another portion that were doing it because they were getting a bit enlightened about this and some had always hated it, right? And some weren't, right? And so, I mean, in a, in a diverse nation like the United States, I think it's, it's reasonable to think that like p political consensus do not happen because for the same reason, right? Just as in like prohibition, the bootleggers and the Baptists were both for prohibition, the bootleggers yeah. so that they could make more money selling hooch. And so the Baptists, cause they didn't want people drinking alcohol, but they still were for the same policy. Right. And, and yeah. I think similarly, I think so, there are some, some anti-racist policies racists could be for at certain times in history. If there was the right kind of convergence, I'm not sure there would be a century long movement of, um, civil rights up under those terms but maybe yeah I'm not sure yeah. okay so I, I think so I think one of the things to look at is um, in the in the primer that you talked about by um, Delgado and Stefantic there's a number of things that they call the core tenants of critical race theory as a project so we've talked about critical race theory as like an idea that like look you can't just look at the liberal notion of like object objective stuff and like quantitative science and stuff like that. But you also have to look at human power relationships, whether in materialist systems or in language games and how people talk. Right. So critical theory on the base, like you're like, Oh yeah, you should do that. That's that makes sense of human beings. Right. But then there's also the idea that CRT as a overall literary movement and movement of, of theorists has a number of things that they're trying to do. One of them you said is that racism is ordinary, not aberrational. Right. 
One is that a system of white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material for the dominant group. So like, I, I think this is what people would call white supremacy in, in America that like, that there is a ascendant group or what I like to call the incumbent group. And that, that like some s- kind of systemic, like as- like ascendant group or, or like um, incumbent group over ascendant group ideology is necessary for both psychic and material dominance. So like the idea that like white people are in some way superior to black people in America, let's say, is materialistically necessary so that you can have a system of embedded white supremacy, let's say. And in terms of how we talk about things so that so that black people would accept that about themselves and white people would accept that about themselves so that in their intuitive way of thinking about the world, they would go along with it, right? And that that dynamic is fundamental to what critical race theorists believe exists in the world, especially in America where, where this is a homegrown philosophy. Would you say that's true? I mean, well, they explicitly say that's um, true. Yeah, would you, I mean, would you agree with there. my like the way I explained it? I'm not sure. I think I'm, I'm still trying to process what you said. Could you give an example? Well, let, me, let me read Pluckrose and Lindsay's um, summary of it. That is, white supremacy is systemic and benefits white people. Therefore, quote, colorblind policies can tackle only the most egregious and demonstrable forms of discrimination. And basically, this I'm not calling them anywhere and nothing else. You agree with that though, right? I mean, that's, that's down-home CRT, isn't it? Uh, you know, I... I'm not going to commit. I can't really commit to saying whether that is or is not CRT, but it there there are some things going on there that are very popular within CRT circles. Yeah, I mean, it's, one, I mean one you're, of the things you're basically talking is... about interest convergence in some ways too, right? And how the economic disadvantages or economic inequalities that are racialized can sometimes uh, remain intact because it benefits certain groups. I mean, th- here's a, tell me if this example kind of captures what you're getting at or what that quote is getting at. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have this view of the emergence of, say, the transatlantic slave trade, according to which people were walking around the world, white people were walking around the world with this racist belief that uh, black Africans were inferior. And they thought, you know, interesting, black Africans are inferior. Oh, and we also happen to like have these plantations over in North America. And and, and actually, like South America w- was received the preponderance of right. Of those enslaved but we have all these like economic needs oh okay so now let's go and enslave them whereas a lot of theorists think it worked the other way around there was an economic need right there was, there was an opportunity mm-hmm. there was an opportunity, yeah, an opportunity to make mm-hmm. immense amount of wealth off of um the growing economic and agricultural needs in north and south america and right. it was more convenient to enslave people from africa than it was elsewhere just because of social pushback, because of distance, right? Mm-hmm. And so racist views- And because those the, shipping trades had been developed for the last hundred years, like the shipping trades in and through Africa yeah. and around the Horn of Africa and the ones that were transatlantic, they had just perfected those. So now going to right. Africa to get people and then taking them over to America was a technology just perfected. Right, it was very convenient, yeah. And so th- a lot of theorists think that racist beliefs actually emerge in order to vindicate or legitimize the exportation of African slaves. So the economic interest, the economic, the economic incentive existed first, and then the legitimization of, of that enterprise, that really unjust, immoral enterprise, came about. And so racism kind of came along afterward, 
not like long afterward, but it came along logically afterward in order to vindicate and legitimize. And so I wonder if that's kind of what that quote is getting at. Yeah, the way Lindsay and Pluckrose in Cynical Theories, which is a book critical of critical race, critical theories, yeah, um, the way they characterize it is they say all that, and then they say, and we were just beginning to get something that you could begin to start to think of as science, and um, and the most preliminary things people thought that they had learned from science was that you could distinguish races. And then with that yeah. like very preliminary stuff, people like jumped to conclusions about superiority, inferiority, and that sort of thing. So that there was like that he and, she, and they say that's one of the reasons why, especially postmodern and materialist critical race theorists attack science so much, so much more than you would think. And it's because from the very beginning, um, science in the in the realm of race has been misused to legitimize racism hmm. rather than to undermine it. Right. And yeah. so that's one of the reasons why they, why some, I mean, sometimes some stuff sounds very nonsensical, like that tribal beliefs are just as legitimate as scientific beliefs. And you're kind of like that, that really sounds like you, you drank too much before you wrote that. But like what they're trying to get at was like, they, I mean, there are different ways people know stuff in a society that's been around for 2000 years that has what we'd consider extremely primitive um, tribal beliefs are still probably getting at something. And oftentimes there are things that science has forgotten because it wants to get at other things. And we shouldn't pretend science is the only way to know important things. And in fact, as we know, well, hopefully that you know, as us philosopher is, I mean, science can tell you basically nothing moral. All it can do is describe. It can't tell you what's, it can tell you what will get you different results given different sets of categories, but it can't tell you that torturing a baby is wrong. Not in the metaphysical moral sense, right? You have to, you have to make morality something that people didn't think it was until very recently in order to do that and so i whereas these tribal beliefs they they do have categories of right and wrong right even if they're weird so like i think part of the idea here is is that is that you have you have um, economic desire um uh, injustice opportunity usually there's a significant power differential i.e europeans had gunpowder right and then you have, and then you have the capacity. You have some kind of intellectual way that's been devised that you can feel like is legitimate in order to do what you need to to justify yourself. Yeah, right. And I think when you put all those together, and that was kind of coming together in the late 1600s, right? And it was just like sort of just in time for a huge transatlantic slave trade, right? And so even though the European transatlantic slave trade, um, moved about as many, or or I think it's actually significantly fewer than the Islamic. African slave trade moved out into other places. Um, the the that doesn't affect like what affected America and America's development was the European transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Thomas Sowell shows, in, I think, in one of his earlier works, that as many or more African slaves were moved into Islamic lands, who fared even worse physically and personally, and there in virtually no guilt literature arose in those societies. And that's a really interesting way to look at how slavery functioned in the world globally, globally, but that still doesn't help us. We still have a history of slavery in America. And the fact that we have, because of our Christian background, a guilt literature doesn't mean it changed us. It doesn't mean it, we moved along fast enough. It doesn't mean that we actually yeah. lived out our faith as well. And, well, um, and yeah. And part of the issue is that we, we, we sometimes overemphasize the, the, like the influence and the force of moral conviction and moral persuasion. And I think Chris, Christians should, should already know going in that you can give me a really good argument, a really good story about what's moral and what's immoral. And it may not move me at all because my heart is often wicked, right? So like depravity is a key concept here. 
Mm-hmm. And so in some way, I think Christians can agree and ought to agree with these insights from critical race theorists that often it's not, it's not moral persuasion that changes us. It's not, it's not compassion. It's not empathy. We're often led by other sorts of incentives. And, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying that, that, never, you know, that we never are moved by the conscience, right? I think we are, absolutely. But, but I think we can kind of extract this insight from critical race theory that um, often the conscience is subordinated to our material and economic interests. And right. we have to, Consci- church, consciences we have to, are hackable. Oh yeah. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's what the CRT scholar is saying when they're talking about language games, right? Like if you come up with a good enough way of talking about it so that a a child growing up or an adult in a society can accept that game, that just that way of talking, it, 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 it like erases the conscientious problem in the human soul where the conscious goes, you can't live like that. You can't do that to those other people. You you never even think about it. It's never an issue. Right. And then the person who brings it up seems like a lunatic because it doesn't fit your plausibility structure. It just seems so implausible that that could possibly be true. You're just kind of like, God, oh, that person's probably just some kind of hack. You know? Yeah.